Hi everyone, David Harris here for Criminal Injustice, and we're taking a little winter break on the podcast. While we're doing that, we're going to bring you some of our favorite recent interviews for you to hear again. And today we're featuring episode 84. This interview was called, Can You Build a Better Cop? Our guest was Emily Owens, a professor in California, Owens and her colleagues have produced research that shows that with a simple and inexpensive intervention involving procedural justice training, police officers get better outcomes with less use of force. Thus the question, can you build a better cop? She was a great guest, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Here it is. We often hear that police work requires split-second responses to keep officers and the public safe. But this might be less true than we think. Can we build a better cop by training them to slow things down? That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is recorded at WESA in Pittsburgh. For past episodes, show notes, and more information, visit criminalinjusticepodcast.com. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your guide, nerd, geek, and explainer of the our extremely messy criminal justice system. Also really glad to still have that day job as professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Now, how often have you heard in one or another news report or in a television show or a movie that split-second decisions are what keep police officers from being hurt or what keep bad guys from doing their worst? I know I have uh, from the Old West cliche of the lawman who's the quicker shot to the present day in which we hear seems like time and time again that it's quick action that gets the bad guys. We hear repeatedly that victory over the forces of crime and disorder depends on very rapid action. But some examples also show us that this line of thinking is not always right. In fact, it might even be responsible for needless uses of force and even deaths. If you've seen the video of the shooting of Laquan McDonald in Chicago in 2015, you know that the police officer who killed McDonald had just come to the scene seconds before. The officers who'd been there first dealing with him were not shooting. Then that last police officer shows up and seconds later, McDonald lay dead on the pavement. Probably the worst example was the death of Tamir Rice in Cleveland, the 12-year-old on a Cleveland playground with a pellet gun. Officers dispatched to the scene had incomplete information, did not know fully what they were facing. These two pieces of a report from the BBC tell us that the speed of the police reaction was key. Take a listen. A patrol car arrives at the scene, and seconds later... Shots fired. Male down. Um, black male. Maybe 20. Um, black revolver. Black handgun. Police say Tamir was told three times to raise his hands, but his family questions the speed of the incident. It is our belief that this situation could have been avoided and that Tamir should still be here with us. The video shows one thing distinctly. The police officers reacted quickly. Now, even when acting as quickly as possible doesn't lead to a deadly confrontation, it can lead to poor decisions and less than optimal results for both police officers and the civilians they encounter. Officers may act automatically, making assumptions that don't fit the action. Actual facts, and they may take action 
just because rapid action is what training and experience have emphasized. At best, this leads to bad experiences for civilians and in more cases than necessary, perhaps, use of force, over-reliance on use of force, all of which damages the crucial relationship between police and the communities they serve. Now, seeing this over and over, one group of researchers began to ask whether there might be some kind of intervention that might improve this. And they lit on a singular insight uh, that perhaps police could be taught to slow things down and that would lead to better and more effective interactions with civilians. Perhaps acting more deliberately would make things more safe, not less safe. They designed a way to test this hypothesis using real police in real situations. Now the results are in and they could change things for the better for police and everyone they serve. The lead researcher on this work is with me today, and she's going to tell us what the team did and what they found. Emily Owens is Associate Professor of Criminology, Law, and Society at the University of California at Irvine. She also has an appointment in the university's Department of Economics. Professor Owens studies the economics of crime, policing, sentencing, and the impact of public policies on both criminal behavior and the behavior of justice system actors like police, prosecutors, and judges. She has recently completed a National Institute of Justice-funded study with three colleagues that evaluates an intervention in police training we're going to talk about. She's the lead author of the resulting publication called Can You Build a Better Cop? Experimental Evidence on Supervision, Training, and Policing in the Community. It's published in Criminology and Public Policy in the January 2018 issue. We'll put up a link to it on our website. Professor Emily Owens, welcome to Criminal Injustice. Thank you for having me. Well, let's start at the beginning. Uh, Tell us who your collaborators were and what was the original impetus for this work? What did you and your colleagues think was out there that you wanted to test? Well, so this was joint work with David Weisberg at George Mason University, um, Karen Amendola at the Police Foundation, and Jeffrey Alpert at the University of South Carolina. Uh, And what we were really interested in was trying to figure out, you know, what can police organizations, you know, police leadership do to promote police integrity? So one of the central ideas that was really heavily promoted in President Obama's task force on 21st century policing is the idea that people obey the law and view police officers as legitimate and fair and just actors in society when the police practice what's known as the tenets of procedural justice. Procedural justice. Very important words, very important concept. We've talked about it here before on criminal injustice. Tell us what that means and why it's so important. Yeah, so procedural justice was this idea that's generally credited to a uh, psychologist named Tom Tyler. And it's this idea that, you know, if you, when you are someone who's sort of giving someone orders, uh, there's three sort of important factors that can really influence the extent to which the person you're, you know, speaking with really respects and agrees with your decision. Um, So the first thing is that the person who's receiving the instructions needs to believe they're being treated fairly relative to other people. 
Um, they need to believe they're given a chance to explain or defend their behavior. Giving voice, and, that's called, right? Yes, giving them voice, sort of an opportunity to be represented or correct any errors or misperceptions that, say, the police officer has. Um, it also needs to be the case that the, the individual person has their explanation really you know, taken into account and considered before there's any sort of final decision that's made. And with the tenets of procedural justice, I mean, what, what was the hope for using this in some kind of intervention? What was it supposed to do? So the idea, or we, what, as it opposed out there, the idea was that if police officers are able to use procedural justice in their daily interactions with citizens, it's going to increase the amount of trust and confidence that citizens have in the behavior of the police. Um, generally, you know, leading people to, you know, agree with police officer decisions and really understand when police take an action, like issue a warning or make an arrest, um, or even use force, you know, that's something that is going to be viewed by the public generally as something that was okay. It'll be understood and clear and transparent why the officer made that particular decision. Um, it's something that, that we hope, or the, the idea is that procedural justice uh, when police officers would use procedural justice, that, you know, the people who are being policed would really, you know, understand and respect and you know, obey what police officers are doing. Yeah. Uh, this is, mm-hmm. And Tom Tyler's work really has been all about that, the fellow you mentioned earlier, that yes. people are more likely to obey the law, respect the law, and respect the police when those decisions are seen as legitimate and and were you thinking that that this would somehow improve the delivery of services that it would improve the ability to do good policing that was our hope exactly um, and we also thought importantly that this might manifest itself in a change in police behavior um in a way that would really you know reduce incidents that the general public and the Department of Justice has historically had a lot of concerns about. So if if police officers are behaving in a procedurally just way and viewed as legitimate, uh, we might expect that there would be fewer instances where the citizen in question, you know, resists what the police are doing or behaves in a way that leads the officer to decide to escalate the situation leading to an arrest or potentially using physical force. And those things have been important to communities across the country, especially since Ferguson, especially since we've been much more tuned in to the use of force uh, in so many ways. So uh, the idea was you use procedural justice, that kind of intervention, you get uh, a way to to impact those decisions. And you've said uh, in prior conversations we've had that that this was all about slowing down the thinking process. Yeah, so as my colleagues and I, you know, really started to think about what a procedurally just police encounter should look like, um, something that we really came around to is that in order to practice these sort of three central parts of procedural justice, uh, what's really critical is the officer has to be paying attention to what the, the person, the citizen who they're talking to is saying. You know, you need to really be taking in and responding to all of the information that's being provided to you and use that new information and formulating your decision about what you do. Um, and now, what's, what's really interesting is that this, you know, most of what police officers do are 
relatively mundane encounters that they do all the time. You know, telling a teenager to stop loitering in front of a convenience store for the 35th time in the past right. four hours. Right. Policing is not yeah. about, you know, daily car chases and gunfights. It's about this stuff. Exactly. Exactly. All right. And most officers, when they become experienced, you know, they know how to do this. They know how to tell someone to, you know, not jaywalk. Um, And there's actually this really canonical idea in labor economics that when you do tasks that you are very familiar with, that you're very experienced with, um, the way you perform those tasks shifts. And there's actually a lot of psychology, hard science to back this up. Um, You become a better worker or better better at your job when you gain experience um, because you begin to automate your actions. We actually process um, tasks or activities that we do all the time in a different part of our brain than when we're doing something new. Um, now, that's essentially why we become productive at things we practice, because we start to automate our behavior. So it's more and, automatic. It comes quickly. You know what to do in the various situations. Bing, bang, boom, it's over. Yes, exactly. And most of the time, in most contexts, this is just, this is, this is great. This is efficient. You're better at your job. You make fewer mistakes. However, in the context of policing, if you are automating your behavior, you're sort of by definition not thinking slowly and carefully and taking in all this new information because you don't really need to, right? And so there's this tension between experience and the use of procedural justice. And that's really what we wanted to test. Um, to see if we could design a supervisory program that encouraged officers to really, in some ways, push back against their experience in their just daily, mundane encounters with citizens, and to see if that increased the use of their procedural justice and also resulted in a change in the way that officers interacted with the public. So pushing back against their experience, thats that seems like, you know, the you want the veteran officer, you want the person who's been around the block, but also you want them to have some way to push back and slow down so that they're paying attention to what's actually in front of them instead of just kind of classifying it, okay, this is a loitering thing, this is a weed thing, here's how we act. Exactly, exactly, right? Um, And we thought this was actually consistent with some of the – you know, police encounters with citizens that have really gone badly, that have received a lot of attention. You know, it's not always a rookie officer. It can be a very experienced officer. Um, and we thought that this could possibly be an explanation for why we. it doesn't seem to be the case that really senior officers are always, you know, are never the ones who are sort of getting into trouble in the public eye. Right. Give us an example of a case that you think fits that description, an experienced person uh, just doing what they do and it leads to trouble. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, a really good example would actually be the Henry Louis Gates uh, Jr. encounter in Cambridge. Oh, this um, is a few years back. Yeah, Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. Right. You know, that was a highly experienced officer. He actually, you know, trained other officers on racial bias. And yet somehow he ended up in this situation where, you know, all of a sudden this incident escalated and you had a a very agitated, you know, Henry Louis Gates Jr. got justifiably angry and the police then escalated the situation. You ended up with, you know, something that was a negative outcome for everyone involved. Absolutely. For those who who don't remember or maybe weren't following these issues back in 2009, 
Uh, Henry Louis Gates, a very, very well-known professor at Harvard, returns from a trip to his uh, to his home. Uh, he's dropped off. Uh, somebody calls in that they see a man fooling around with a door on a house. Uh, the police show up and uh, force Professor Gates in his own home to produce ID and so forth. The professor gets very agitated. There's a little bit of, do you know who I am? Things like that. And things go south in a hurry and it ends up with the president speaking about it. Mm-hmm. And because, and you're saying that be, that a lot of what led to this was a police officer who just going through the routine, doing what they do, and not really maybe paying close enough attention to uh, what was actually happening in that situation. We thought that that was one possible explanation, yes. You know, that, that was just something that made sense, given the experience of the officer and the fact that this, uh, that this was not, you know, a rogue police officer. This was a highly respected guy on the force. Um, right. You know, so how could this happen? Right. So you design with your colleagues, you design an intervention to test your idea that this is something that may be going wrong and here's a way around it. Tell us what it is that you designed and how you set up the study. So the way the training program worked was that we wanted officers to meet with their supervisors, both their supervisory sergeant and the sergeant supervisor, the lieutenant, um, and talk about an incident, a citizen interaction that the officer had that was really just a standard, typical citizen encounter. We didn't want it to be an incident that resulted in a a complaint or use of force um, or anything like that, just the kind of incidents that officers go through every single day. Um, And what we wanted to do was have the officer really reflect and talk about how they thought about it, how they processed that particular incident. Um, so the sergeant was directed or was told to, you know, begin the meeting by explaining, you know, what procedural justice was and said this was important uh, to the agency and its mission. And then the sergeant invited the officer to choose a recent incident to talk about. Um, This was actually really important. We're sort of starting to work through the sergeant really modeling some of the ideas of procedural justice. So the sergeant would, through his or her behavior, show exactly what the procedural justice techniques look like. Exactly, exactly. Right. And the, the first step was having this sort of joint decision where the sergeant, who's, you know, clearly the officer's superior, right, is inviting the officer to have, to really have a conversation as opposed to directing an officer to, you know, immediately start defending their actions in a particular incident that the sergeant thought was problematic. Um, so the, the sergeant then asked the officer open-ended questions um, like, for example, describe to me, you know, what you thought when you first heard about this incident. Um, tell me, you know, what did you notice when you arrived on scene? Uh, did that change anything about what your perceptions of how the incident was going to be were? Um, how did you use this new information in your decision? Um, and were you happy with the outcome of the decision? Is there anything you would have changed? Um, generally open-ended questions that allowed the officer to really, you know, have a chance to talk, to set the pace of the meeting, um, 
And also, you know, this wasn't a disciplinary thing. Frequently, these incidents were resolved to everyone's satisfaction. There, there wasn't much the officer thought could have been changed, and it was, it was great. This, this wasn't a disciplinary meeting in any sense of the word. You know, the, the outcome was definitely not a, a predetermined or preordained thing. So usually, uh, I'm just, you know, I'm guessing that when the Sarge calls you in to talk, it's often when something has gone wrong, a member of the public is dissatisfied, maybe filed a complaint. This wasn't like that. Yes, exactly. This was really a shift in a sort of standard police culture, right, where officers really are not treated with procedural justice on their job. Police departments are hierarchical organizations where, you know, you give orders and you take orders. And there's not always a sense in which, you know, that it's important that your sergeant explains to you why they're making the decisions that they're making. You do what they say, um, so this was really different than the usual kind of police uh, sort of intervention. Now, now how did you um, make sure that this would be a rigorous enough study to produce uh, defensible data on one point or another? You must have used some kind of random control. Yes, we did a randomized experiment. So we identified a set of officers who we thought were most likely to be in situations where there was potentially going to be sort of a discretionary arrest or a discretionary use of force or a complaint. Um, Officers who we identified as working in sort of higher risk circumstances than other officers. Uh, We thought this was important because, you know, again, making arrests, using force, that this is actually something that's very rare in police activity. Um, So we identified, you know, with the help of the Seattle Police Department, um, every two weeks we identified a set of officers who appeared to work in areas where other officers had been injured or involved in complaints or had to use force. Um, And after identifying that set of officers who we thought could potentially benefit from this extra training, we then randomly assigned officers to either a control group that just had, you know, business as usual, or a treatment group that was called in to have a meeting with their sergeant and lieutenant. And then what we did was follow the behavior of those officers in the field, again, with the collaboration of the Seattle Police Department, using their data that they collect as, you know, part of their just daily business, um, to see if the way that the treated officers were behaving in the field varied from the way the control officers were behaving. All right. Let's take a quick break here. This is Criminal Injustice. Our guest is Professor Emily Owens of University of California at Irvine. She's the lead author of a great and important new study, uh, the title of which begins, Can You Build a Better Cop? Let's take a few minutes. We'll be right back. You've got questions about criminal justice, and we've got the answers. And we can't give you legal advice, but if you want to know more about something you heard on the show, maybe something you read in the news, or just something you've always wondered about that sprawling mess we call the criminal justice system, leave a message with your question at 412-407-3389. You just might hear the answer in a future episode. Be sure to include your first name and where you're calling from, You can also submit your questions or feedback online by visiting criminalinjusticepodcast.com. Again, the phone number for your questions is 412-407-3389, 412-407-3389. 
Hi, David Harris, criminal injustice, and our guest is Professor Emily Owens of the University of California at Irvine. She's the lead author of a study called Can You Build a Better Cop? And she's telling us about a very interesting new intervention based on procedural justice issues that uh, was performed with the cooperation of the Seattle Police Department. Now, let's let's pick up our discussion. You were explaining how you design a random control experiment, uh, equal numbers of officers in the group getting the special procedural justice training modeled by the sergeant and lieutenant, uh, and uh, other officers just business as usual. Then they went out in the field, and these were officers selected because they were most likely to have the kind of encounters that would result maybe in an arrest or a use of force, and then you just put them out there and observed what they did. What kind of results did you see? Well, so we really looked at two categories of results. Um, the first thing we were interested in was, again, you know, these incidents that are really of concern to the public. So how frequently do officers make an arrest? How frequently do they use force? Um, and how frequently are they complaint, do citizens file complaints against them? Um, and what we observed was that after, uh, within, you know, a week of having one of these supervisory meetings, the officers who'd had the procedural justice training were a little bit less likely to actually make arrests when they were out in the field. Now, this was maybe like a 20% reduction in the probability that officers made arrests. Um, After six weeks, um, when we did a longer-term follow-up, again, we saw that officers who'd had these, you know, generally rarely, very short meetings, you know, just talking, checking in with their supervisors for under 20 minutes, still appeared to be less likely to resolve arrests or, uh, I'm sorry, resolve incidents with an arrest. Um, similarly, when we then looked at the amount of force that officers were using against citizens, and again, I just want to emphasize, you know, we weren't looking at force that was deemed to be out of policy or excessive. We were looking at just, you know, did an officer feel like they had to use physical force to regain control of a situation? Um, that is not something that happens very frequently, but if we really did the sort of before and after in the treatment and control group, um, the officers who had this intervention were less likely to use force than officers who hadn't received this particular training. And this is out to a period of six weeks from the training? Yes. And for use of force, we even looked, we looked even longer to look over a couple months um, of officer behavior. Because, again, just use of force is not something we see very frequently. Um, but, yeah, over six weeks, something started to something started to sort of appear, sort of a stable difference in officers' behavior. Um, and then if we looked over a six-month period, um, officers who were in the treatment group actually did use force. You know, the point estimates are very, are very large, but a substantial reduction in the frequency with which officers used force. Wow. So... Let's make sure we understand this. We have a very uh, a twenty minute intervention that is really sort of a directed conversation by the lieutenant and the sergeant, uh, allowing for open ended responses by the officer all along the lines of procedural justice as we were talking about. For that twenty minute conversation, you get results going out at least six weeks, maybe more for use of force. Uh, and it reduces the number of arrests and use of force in a st- statistically significant amount. 
um, just by having that conversation. Is that do I have that right? Yeah, no, that's right. You know, we were really to to be perfectly frank when we were going into this. You know, we expected to see maybe a short run effect. You know, the first twenty four or forty eight hours. Um, you know, maybe the first week. But these this did seem to be something that had this and a persistent change in officer behavior. You might think another thing that's consistent with this is officers, you know, responded to these meetings, but then didn't, you know, they never really went back to to business as usual. That is, Um, that is amazing. Now, you know, I can easily imagine a response from uh, either police officers or members of the public. They might say, well, does reduced use of force or reduced arrest, doesn't that put the public safety at risk? I mean, you're arresting fewer people? Oh, exactly. That, exactly. And that was the second category of events that we looked at, really addressed that specifically. Um, a, one way to arrest fewer people or use force less is you stay in your car, right? You don't engage the public. You um, de-police. Right. That, the the de-policing. That's the phrase. Yes. Yes. And so we really wanted to very carefully measure whether or not this change we observed was due to de-policing or a change in how officers were interacting with people rather than a change in the frequency with which officers were interacting with people. So we took a look at how regularly officers were sort of checking in to incidents on the computer-aided dispatch. So just how many times did an officer appear to be you know, involved with some incidents? We also looked at the fraction of incidents that were on views, that were officer-initiated citizen interactions. Um, we then looked to see, you know, how long did an officer spend on any given encounter, um, and if they, you know, felt an encounter was serious enough to file a written report. Um, so we tried as best we could to measure sort of officer presence in the community. Um, I think if you, you know, if you want to talk about how officers reduce crime, I really think just, you know, officers' presence, having police around, um, is really what I think drives a lot of the relationship between police and crime. Um, and what we observed was that rather than becoming less active from disengaging with the community, um, the trained officers, um, particularly, you know, in the week, uh, the immediate time period, the week following one of these encounters, actually appeared to be a little bit more active. Uh, they had slightly more uh, events that they appeared or incidents they appear to be participating in uh, the fraction of those incidents that were on views you know maybe increased a little bit um, that tended to go away in general we did not find any evidence that you know over really after the engagement happened over a six week period that there were any really substantive differences in how engaged these officers were with the community that we could measure um, we also took a look at just overall crime rates in Seattle yeah. relative mm-hmm. to, um, you know, other places like Portland, uh, where we think there might be sort of comparable changes in crime, um, or Spokane. And, you know, at the end of the day, there was about, maybe about 12% of the officers in the Seattle Police Department actually had one of these meetings. Um, and we didn't really see any changes in crime in Seattle that we didn't also observe in other cities. Um, it didn't look like if you compared the months where we had the experiment running um, to the months where we didn't have the experiment running, that crime in Seattle looked really different. Um, so we, you know, we just didn't find any evidence that this was leading to increases in crime or to a pullback of officers from the community. Um, it just looked like officers in some situations were making different decisions about how to resolve an event. 
Yeah. So I can I can almost hear uh, as, as in ways that I have in so many meetings and trainings, I can almost hear the voice of some police officers saying, you know, that that rapid response responding right away as quickly as you can. That's what keeps officers and members of the public safe. If you slow us down, our lives are going to be at risk. Well, what do you say to that, or did, did your results address that in any way? So we did not look at officer injury as an outcome. Um, but something that I, I want to emphasize that I think is actually gaining some traction with some other organizations, um, like PERF, like the Police Executive Research Forum, is that by slowing down, you actually allow officers to create some additional distance between themselves and the citizen or suspect. You know, you are getting officers to, or you're encouraging officers to, again, notice by, by collecting more information, by paying more attention, you're hopefully increasing the frequency of those officers notice that, oh, something's not right here. There's, you know, this guy does have, this particular person does have, you know, a suspicious bulge in their pocket. You're, you're allowing the officer to notice more things that could affect their safety. And so, um, and also taking what Perf calls actually a tactical pause. A tactical pause. Yeah, I've heard that phrase yes. too. And so you're giving them the opportunity to absorb more information by actually going slower. Exactly. Exactly. Which could, I would argue, potentially make them safer rather than increase the probability they're going to get injured. You know, they're not slowing down. They're being more careful about what they're doing. Is so, the idea. So, uh, in the time since the study has been released, which is quite recent as we're talking now. Um, have you had reaction to it from uh, other police departments? Uh, what have you heard? So I presented the results of this experiment in a conference with uh, some members of the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Department uh, who were interested in this um, and this idea, you know, because again, this is a really, it's a small intervention. We surveyed the officers um, who were treated and asked them, you know, how did you feel about this? And, and generally, for the most part, you know, this was seen as a relatively benign encounter. And it's something that we think is low cost and did appear in this case to influence behavior. Um, so we think that this is, you know, the next step is to really see if what we found in Seattle was truly an effect of this training or something that was just a statistical fluke, which will sometimes happen in experiments. Um, so this is something that we think, um, and my colleagues and I have some plans, I don't know if it's going to be with the Washington, D.C. Police Department or what police department we'll go to, um, to try to replicate this and see if we can, you know, if this result that we found in Seattle is something that can carry over to different police departments um, because it kind of seems like a win-win. You know, this is not a really costly right. intervention. Mm -hmm. And it did seem to cause a, you know, really identifiable statistical reduction in what we what look like truly discretionary arrest or discretionary use of force. Ah, um, interesting. So if, if there was one thing you'd like people to know about this, especially people in the law enforcement community, one takeaway, uh, what would you tell them? That... It is important to think about how officers are behaving in the field and that you can potentially get real changes in how officers are behaving with small changes in supervision or monitoring. This doesn't need to be a drastic thing um, where you're investing millions of dollars in body cameras. There, there's some potential small tweaks that can be made relatively quickly. 
that appear to have a very beneficial result. Professor Emily Owens, University of California, Irvine. She's the lead author of a study called Can You Build a Better Cop? We'll put a link to it up on our website. Professor Owens, thanks very much for being my guest on Criminal Injustice. Thank you so much for having me. And now let's wind it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. This edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly comes to us from the Wichita Eagle, Slate, and the ABA Journal News Online. It goes back a few years, but the tale of lawyer behaving badly, Dennis Hover of Kansas, is still worth hearing. Lawyer Hover took on a homicide case in which the accused, Hover's client, stood charged with murder in an incident in which he allegedly shot and killed two people and also shot a third person who survived. Lawyer Hover took a number of, shall we say, unorthodox approaches to his client's defense. Let me enumerate. He told the jury that his client was, quote, a professional drug dealer and, quote, a shooter of people. He told the jury that his client was innocent because if he had killed the first two victims, he never would have left the third victim alive. It may be worth mentioning here that the third victim was shot eight times, which could lead you to think that whoever did it perhaps thought that she was dead too. He did nothing to investigate possible alibi witnesses. Number four, even though prosecutors agreed to tell the jury about his client's felony conviction without telling them what it was for, he, that is Lawyer Hover, made it his business to tell the jury that the felony was a voluntary manslaughter killing, a fact the jury never would have known if not for him. I'm sure that really helped his client. Next, he said he had no money to hire an investigator to do things like investigate alibis, so he didn't get one for the case. But he also failed to call his state's indigent defense board to seek funds for an investigator, which he could easily have done. And then, once the trial reached the sentencing phase, lawyer Hover told the jury that the killer should be executed, but that his client was innocent. That, he says, was his mitigating circumstance. That's not how it works. Well, you can guess how well this all went. The jury found the client guilty of murder and sentenced him to death. Given this abominable level of representation, it was no surprise that the Kansas Appeals Court reversed the client's murder conviction. And Lawyer Hover ended up in front of the state's disciplinary commission. And the Disciplinary Commission findings against Lawyer Hover made it up to the Kansas Supreme Court for argument on whether he should be disbarred. Well, how did that hearing go? It seems like maybe just to top it all off, Lawyer Hover showed up for arguments in the Kansas Supreme Court for the hearing on his possible disbarment dressed as Thomas Jefferson. Yes, powdered wig, long colonial era suit, white stockings, the whole thing. 
Why? Because Jefferson is his hero, Hover explained, and he wanted to see if the court would protect his rights. I'm sure the court was impressed. How impressed? Given everything that Hover did and everything he failed to do in the murder trial that resulted in the death penalty for his client, and given Hover's previous disciplinary history. Yeah, we didn't talk about that here. There's really no need. The court found Hover's, quote, inexplicable incompetence, close quote, to be, quote, more than sufficient to require disbarment. Yeah, what more can you say? Well, according to lawyer Hover, he's not that upset with his disbarment. He was planning on leaving the profession anyway, he said, because he doesn't find it, quote, productive. According to Slate, Hover will, quote, devote his time to growing vegetables in an aquaponics garden, close quote. That sounds good. At least if you mess that up, no one gets the death penalty and you probably will still get some zucchini out of it. I mean, planting those things always works no matter what you screw up. That's Lawyers Behaving Badly, and that is another episode of Criminal Injustice. Review Criminal Injustice on Apple Podcasts or your other podcast apps. Those reviews really do help people find us. Subscribe to Criminal Injustice and share us with your friends and all over social media. Got a burning question about the criminal justice system or about something you've heard on Criminal Injustice? Submit your question to our Ask Dave feature. Call us at 412-407-3389 and give us your name, where you're calling from, and your brief question. Also tell us how we can contact you if we want to ask your permission to use your question. We will not share your contact information with anyone. You can also use our Ask Dave tab on our website to send us questions and suggestions for stories and issues and lawyers behaving badly stories that we should cover. Find us at www.criminalinjusticepodcast.com. I'm David Harris back with you next time. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris and produced by Megan Harris and Josh Rollerson. Interviews are recorded at the studios of WESA in Pittsburgh. For more information, links, and past episodes, visit criminalinjusticepodcast.com, where you can submit your questions and comments, or call 412-407-3389 with your question for David Harris. That's 412-407-3389, or online, criminalinjusticepodcast.com. In the U.S., we incarcerate our fellow citizens at the highest rate in the world. And once they're in prison, we give the incarcerated hardly any thought at all. But one program works to help our imprisoned population by teaching them college courses inside prison alongside college students who come from the outside. It's the Inside Out program on the next full-length interview episode of Criminal Injustice. Hear it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app or at www.criminalinjusticepodcast.com.